Hello, and welcome to Profiles, the program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Paul Tash, chairman and CEO of the Tampa Bay Times Publishing Company and chair of the Pulitzer Prize Board. Paul, welcome to Profiles. Thanks very much, Owen. You got interested in journalism at Andrew Jackson High School. Um, was it somebody, or what was it that turned you on to journalism? I think it was a combination of my teachers. Uh, my teachers in English and social studies were more compelling to me. They were more interesting to me than my teachers in math and science. And so uh, as my uh, high school career went on, uh, that was the way I was drawn. Uh, the woman who was running the uh, school newspaper, uh, the advisor at Jackson High School, was a was a woman named Mrs. Claus, Lois Claus, and uh, she was a wonderfully supportive uh, English teacher and uh, journalism advisor. And we put out a four page uh, edition of the Old Hickory every week. And it turned out that I might have a little talent for that, and that's what what took me in this direction. There was something else you did in high school that I found um, completely surprising, uh, at least for high school students interested in journalism, and that's that you worked part-time as an advertising copywriter and salesman. How did that happen? Uh, I wanted to get a job at a newspaper, and uh, nobody (laughs) in their right mind would hire me to write, uh, but there was a... uh, a woman in Mishawaka, Indiana, uh, named Edith Boisinos, uh the prototypical little old lady in tennis shoes who had uh, a weekly newspaper called the Enterprise Record. And she said, well, I, I can't pay you to write, but uh, if you want to try to sell ads, uh, that'd be fine. So I sold ads at $2 a column inch uh, on commission, and uh, she gave me my first paying job in, in newspapers, and I'll uh, was very grateful for the chance. Do you think that might have tipped your interest toward the management side? You know, I, I don't know which came first, Owen. You know, as a kid, I had always uh, done jobs uh, that uh, might put a little money in my pocket. I shoveled snow in the summertime. I picked uh, produce sometimes and would sell it door to door at a time when there were still housewives at home to uh, and willing to buy uh, boxes of tomatoes from a neighbor kid who was going around door to door. So I, I don't know which came first, but I, I've, I did have an interest in the business of uh, the operation as well as the news. And that I could see the connections between the two. You were number one in your high school class from South Bend area. You could have gone to Northwestern or IU. What led you to choose IU? Well, it's uh, it's an interesting story. My folks had my parents were both teachers and had graduated from Ball State Teachers College, and they were not keen on the idea of IU, and in fact had encouraged me to look at all other options. But uh, when Dad found out how much Northwestern was going to cost. <laughs> $5,000 a year and no scholarships. Well, that was a huge sum, uh, particularly for a couple of school teachers from South Bend. And so dad's opposition to Indiana started to soften quite a bit. And uh, I wound up uh, applying to both, was accepted here at uh, IU, and the cost at the time was more like $2,000 a year. And uh, not only that, but the school was very support- the university was very supportive. So uh, here I came, and it was it was such an important decision, not just for my college years, but all the years that have followed. You were here at a at a an interesting time. Uh, a new, I think, then director of the then Department of Journalism, a young publisher. What was the dyna- the dynamic there? What was going on? Well, I uh, sometimes go into Ernie Pyle Hall and I'll look at the photos of uh, the faculty and uh, Jack Backer was the publisher of The Daily Student was certainly, uh, I would consider, a very important teacher at the time. Uh, and it was just a great time at the, at the journalism department later at school. And 
I know every generation looks back on its own youth with a sense that that was a particularly special time. But I really think that was a great time in journalism at IU. You had some some wonderful professors who took a real uh, individual interest in, in students. Uh, Dick Gray, the director, taught the introductory class for journalism students, a big lecture class. He knew the individual students. I I felt very fortunate to come not only to Indiana as a place, but at that time. You were one in a long line of distinguished editors of the Indiana Daily Student. What did that experience teach you? I think it 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 taught me a couple of things. Uh, first, how the individual effort fits into the uh, larger result. Second, uh, it taught me uh, that I would inevitably need to take responsibility for things that I hadn't touched myself. I remember sitting one night on the copy desk as a uh, very uh, energetic but not entirely accurate reporter was over banging away on a typewriter and turning to the managing editor and saying, you know, I know at this very moment an error is being committed, and I feel powerless to stop it. (laughs) (laughs) And I think one of the other things that it reinforced on a personal level, working at the Daily Student, having a a demanding class load, was that, you know, you you can really do a lot as as long as as you get at it and uh, use your time well. Uh, I had a very full life at uh, IU, both in the classroom at the Daily Student. I was a big, of course, a huge basketball fan. I, I had a lot of friends, uh, but I think it also taught me how to make use of my time. There's an interesting story about you. Um, you were a finalist for the Rhodes Scholarship. Um, one of your professors said, quote, if one could put together all the qualities one would like to have in a son, the result would be Paul Tash. But you withdrew from a Rhodes Scholarship? What's well, I was offered two scholarships simultaneously. I was offered a Marshall Scholarship and the Rhodes, and uh, I took the Marshall. Uh, and there were a variety of reasons why I took the Marshall rather than uh, the Rhodes. Uh, but it took me, that decision uh, took me not to Oxford, but to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, where I did a law degree. I think, Owen, one of the one of the factors was that I knew uh, uh, that there are a lot of strengths outside in any country, outside the 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 places like New York or Washington or Oxford and London. And I was uh, I've been very well served by that decision to to spend two years in Edinburgh. Uh, doing a law degree, which I thought built upon my undergrad uh, in political science. Uh, who knows how it would have turned out if I'd made the other decision, but this one has worked out really well. What were a couple of the things you learned from the Edinburgh experience? Well, I really think that uh, law school at its best is not so much a set of rules, but as a way to think analytically. So that was really important. Uh, I also think living anywhere for an extended period outside one's own country teaches you an awful lot about where you came from. One of the things I, I learned by living somewhere else was a lot better appreciation, and I don't mean affection, because that was already deep, but a much greater understanding of my own country, even from a relatively similar historical tradition of of Great Britain. Uh, you could see that the U.S. is different in some important ways. Just to be direct, one of the things is how fundamentally conservative politically the United States is in comparison to a lot of other places in the world. I don't mean that 
as a judgment at all, but just as a comparison in relationship to other places. The U.S. is a, particularly Europe, is a, certainly a more conservative uh, country. You started your professional newspaper career at um, what was then the St. Petersburg Times. How did you get there? Well, that was the IU connection. Uh, Nelson Pointer, uh, who was a graduate of Indiana University uh, and had been an editor of the Daily Student back in his day, uh, had created a scholarship at the journalism school for a senior that included a summer job uh, the previous uh, summer. And so uh, I was actually not hired by the St. Pete Times originally. I was hired for the St. Pete, picked for the St. Pete Times by the by the scholarship committee. And I wound up um, at uh, St. Petersburg for that summer, and that that went very well. And so after I got back from, I was getting ready to come back from uh, Britain, and the the gravy train was coming into the station and it was time to go to work. I wrote a number of uh, places, including St. Petersburg. And uh, Gene Patterson and Andy Barnes, who had taken an interest in me when I was there and had stayed in touch while I was in Scotland, uh, invited me to come back. And I thought, well, that'll be a great place to get started. I, I thought I'd be there three or four years. It's been 35 years now. But it was all because of IU uh, mm-hmm. that I wound up there. At the St. Petersburg Times, you were local news editor or local news reporter, Tallahassee reporter, city editor, metro editor, Washington bureau chief before you became editor. Which of those was the most interesting one? Each was interesting in its own way. Uh, being the Washington bureau chief was uh, a terrific working sabbatical. Um, I went to Washington toward the end of the first Bush administration uh, when it looked initially as if George H.W. Bush, who uh, had marshaled the collective forces of freedom against the, and had driven the tyrant Saddam Hussein back into his own lair, looked as if he was a lock for re-election, and then you could see how quickly it was unraveling. I was there for the Clarence Thomas uh, confirmation hearings, which one of the things I learned uh, then, politics is most interesting when everybody gets taken off script, (laughs) you know. It was so fascinating to watch people try to figure out on the fly what their lines were because it was not just going to be the uh, the kabuki dance that everybody had had anticipated but so that was a really interesting that was a really interesting time and it was that was there was so, even now but certainly then too uh, there were a lot of smart people all sort of covering the same kind of territory. And so I had to think very much about how to do distinctive kinds of work and also to be quick about it. If you had a good idea, you better write it or you were going to read it somewhere else. What's the role of a, a, I guess we can call it a regional paper like the Tampa Bay Times in reporting from Washington when you've got behemoths there like the Washington Post and the New York Times? And the AP. And so, absolutely. And so we we always tried to do distinctive work, things that would be of particular interest in our area. Of course, the, at its most fundamental level, you've got the uh, local representatives, the local delegation. Um, you've got uh, clearly the issues that are of greatest import uh, to your area and to your readers. The, at you know, one point, it seemed as if MacDill Air Force Base, a very big uh, institution and employer in our area might close in a round of base closings. That's the kind of issue that would be particularly interesting. Now, uh, our bureau in Washington is very much uh, interested in the career of Marco Rubio and immigration, and as those two things uh, relate uh, to each other, 
were uh, keenly interested in what uh, the consequences of the national uh, budget debate might be to the entitlement programs like Medicare and Social Security. So there's there's a good bit of enterprise to be done, but it really does have to be distinctive work. One of the most distinctive things we've done, and it's centered now in our Washington Bureau, is PolitiFact, uh, a, a, a website, first, I think, Pulitzer Prize-winning website uh, that uh, sorts out the uh, truth from deception or fiction in political statement, and we've just launched a parallel site uh, called Pundit Fact. If we're going to put the politicians on the truthometer, it seems only fair to put uh, the chattering classes like us on the truthometer as well. I'm, I'm delighted by the uh, Pundit Fact because it's headed by one of my former students. Is that right? Yeah. Which one? Aaron Sherrock. Oh, terrific. Yes. Well, uh, I met Aaron. There is, of course, a deep connection. Uh, it, it traces very much to Mr. Pointer himself, but there is a deep connection between Indiana University and uh, the Tampa Bay Times organization and the Pointer Institute. Uh, Tom French, a member of the faculty here, is an IU alum, but he's also an alum of the St. Petersburg Times and won a Pulitzer Prize there. Tim Nickens, the editor of the editorial page at the Tampa Bay Times, uh, is an IU alum, a Pulitzer Prize winner. And the brand new president of the Pointer Institute is Tim Franklin, another uh, IU alum and uh, daily student editor uh, who's had a, a, just a terrific career and now joins us at the Pointer Institute as the president there. So there's been a very strong connection some, in both directions now. Uh, but Aaron, uh, as you point out, is a is a uh, terrific uh, uh, product of the IU Journalism School. It is now heading to an effect. I first met Aaron when I was up here one time interviewing potential summer interns. And at the time, Aaron was trying to decide whether he wanted to go into uh, journalism or politics. He was sort of drawn to that possibility as well. Now he's uh, working very much to sort out uh, it's journalism about politics and whether politicians and people covering them are telling the truth. One more thing before we leave Washington. Um, have you faced budget um, challenges in trying to maintain an adequate core of reporters? This has been a punishing decade in all kinds of sectors of the economy, and I remind my colleagues of that, but it's certainly been a punishing sector in uh, publishing and journalism as well. I think the for collectively since 2006, the advertising revenues for American newspapers have fallen by half, 50 percent. So that's obviously had uh, some consequence on the way we go about our work, not just in journalism but in other parts of the enterprise too. So, I, but in the newsroom, in journal, as far as the journalism goes, I think that means that there is a particular premium on doing distinctive work, things that you can't get somewhere else. You point out that we have a Washington Bureau, but we also subscribe to the AP, the Associated, Associated Press, and the New York Times, and the Washington Post. There is no reason for us to simply duplicate the kind of work that we're getting from them already. The Tampa Bay Times is um, a unique kind of paper. Reporters tend to stay around a long time. What is the magic of the place? That's a great question. I, I think, for me, there are a couple of elements. Even as a young reporter, it was a place, I hope still is a place, where I felt I could make a difference in Tuesday's paper by how good a job I'd done on Monday. And so I think it was a place of opportunity. Uh, you know, they made me city editor at the age of 28. It's impossible to think that. Um, so it was, a, it, it was, and I think still is, a place of, of uh, possibility. Second, um, I think 
because it is independent and locally owned, uh, the reporters have us, as as well as the rest of the staff, I don't mean just to say the news folks, but the staff has a sense that we're in this to really make a difference in our world, starting most locally in the Tampa Bay area, but we're in it in a, to, to serve this area. I mean, Mr. Pointer used to say every town deserves a newspaper that loves it best. And I, I think folks who come to the Times and stay recognize that it's a place where that really does matter. Uh, we're not answering to a distant chain. Uh, we're not part of a public company. Uh, it's a privately held, independent newspaper, and I think that, that makes a difference. And then finally, Florida is such a great news place. You know, um, Indiana was a wonderful place to grow up, a terrific place to grow up. Uh, but Florida is sort of a frontier place. And it's where people come for a new start, whether they come from or for a new start, whether they're toward, uh, you know, the later years in life or whether they come because they've uh, run into trouble somewhere else and they want to make a fresh start or they think it's going to be warm there and they have some opportunity or because it's great, uh, a great business opportunity, you know, that they see a possible. Walt Disney came to Florida because he saw a great business opportunity there. So it's not all sorted out. And you know, for a journalist, that's a great uh, dynamic. And you have um, fairly even politics as the hanging chads uh, <laughs> events tell us. It, it's, it is a uh, both in our part of the state and in the state generally. Uh, uh, Florida is a very evenly balanced and, and in some cases divided place. And so uh, the politics are interesting. When I was a political reporter uh, for us and covering the state house in Tallahassee, the state government was dominated by Democrats. The Democrats easily controlled both houses of the legislature and the governor's uh, office. Uh, these days, that's entirely reversed. And that happened in a relatively short period of time. But that's not to say it couldn't go back the other way. You know, the Democrats at the moment don't look uh, like they're ready to make a huge number of gains, although they could win the governor's race this year. But it's, it is a place where the things can change. And so that, that makes it a very interesting place. You're also chair of the Pointer Institute for Media Studies. What is that exactly? Well, it's now named after that guy, the little guy in the bow tie from uh, southern Indiana, Nelson Pointer. Uh, Mr. Pointer's father had purchased the newspaper uh, more than 100 years ago. And uh, it sort of bounced along uh, with uneven results, both journalistically and financially. There was a time when he, when Mr. Pointer's father almost lost control of the paper uh, over uh, financial hardship. And uh, but after uh, World War II, his son Nelson really came to take uh, charge, and during that time, it became something of a real leader. Mr. Pointer and his wife Henrietta Pointer also started Congressional Quarterly, a publication in Washington so that folks back home could know what their representatives were really doing and voting on. It's sort of akin to PolitiFact, really, uh, in this time. So he was a very foresighted guy. And uh, he decided that he, upon his death, he didn't want the Times to be sold into a chain. So rather than leave the newspaper to his wife or to his two daughters, uh, he left. Basically, before he died, he created a school called then the Modern Media Institute. He was too modest to name it for himself. That would inherit uh, his shares in the company. 
and his thought was uh, that this would achieve two purposes. One, it would keep the Times independent and locally owned, and second, that uh, support from the Times would uh, help the Pointer Institute uh, grow into a school, mostly for professional journalists, that could uh, raise the standing of journalism and the practice of it around the country and maybe even around the world. Remember, Mr. Pointer had had been a young man during the Depression in the U.S. He'd seen the political strains here. He'd seen Europe fall to fascism. He knew, had, because he had witnessed it himself, that democracies can be fragile. And uh, he, he thought that journalism was one of the great... Um, inoculations against that kind of extremism, a vaccine. And so he wanted to do something that would make journalism stronger. So he gave it away. He gave away the company. It was a remarkable act of philanthropy, provided for his wife and daughters in other ways. But he basically created uh, this example that is still almost unique. A couple other folks have followed along a bit. Everybody's interested until they get to the part about he gave it away. And it didn't go to his heirs. And then uh, interest tends to wane, much to the relief of the succeeding generations. Let's take a break here for um, some music that you've chosen. Um, Layla, the original version of Derek and the Dominoes. why is that special to you? Now, Eric, I think it's the greatest rock and roll song of uh, ever. I'll make that case. And uh, I would, uh, it was uh, certainly uh, of my time, of my era. Of course, Mr. Clapton went on uh, under his own name and, and did a later version too. And that one's pretty nice. But so a few years ago, I, Eric Clapton was touring. Uh, and he was playing at the at in Tampa at the now Tampa Bay Times Forum at the building with our name on. So I had some pretty good seats, and uh, I took my older daughter, who was uh, probably twenty at the time, and she helped bring down the average age of the crowd. <laughs> but as we walked out uh, that night, and and he played the original version of Layla, the rock and roll version. And as we walked out that night, I turned to Kaylee and I said, you know, sweetie, that was a bunch of people my age trying to remember what it felt like to be your age. And for about five minutes there, we did. That was Layla, the original version of Derek and the Dominoes, music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, Paul Tash, chair of the Pulitzer Prize Board. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. A couple more questions on journalism before we turn to your work with the Pulitzer Prize. What do you see as the shape of journalism in 10 years, by which time you'll be retired? Um, What kind of content what kind of form? Gee, Owen, it's very hard to know. Ten years, there'll be as much change in the next ten years as there probably has been in the past 30, and it's really it's really tough to know. 
we just had a conference at the Pointer Institute about the future of news audiences. And uh, all the trends, the, the, the lesson I came away with is that all the trends are pushing smaller and smaller slices of audience in with more and more personal interest. So that has huge consequence, obviously, for folks in our line of work. But I think it also has huge consequence, potentially, for the kind of country that we live in. Because if we're all following ever more our own particular interests, our own personal interests, how then do we establish common understandings that help us as a country or as a community take on big issues like what are we going to do about the balance between young and old? What kind of wars do we really want to fight? Uh, what is the future of public education? You know, there can be reasonable, there should be differences and disagreements about all those issues, but it will be tough to sort those out if we don't have some common understandings. And I think it's, it's, it's going to be steadily more difficult. It means journalism is going to have to be better to try to respond and address those kinds of stories, those kinds of issues, those, those kinds of uh, great public debates in a way that actually engages people as citizens. I remember at McNutt Dormitory sitting around with my friends and dorm mates one evening listening to the radio as our birth dates and our draft numbers were being pulled from one bin and the other. Now, I certainly don't advocate a, a draft and an Asian land war as a way to maintain a general interest in foreign policy, but it had that effect. We knew that we had a stake in how the country was being run. I think looking ahead for us collectively, and I don't just mean people my kids' age, I mean people my own age and my, my elders as well. The question is, are we prepared to be more than consumers? Are we also prepared to be citizens? And how will journalism engage people as citizens so that they really understand their stake and their role in, in how this all plays out. That's, I think, going to be a very interesting question. Now, on the, I think stuff is going to have to be shorter. I think attention spans and screens and formats are going to be smaller. Uh, I think more and more is going to be on, uh, obviously, on electronic devices. I actually think that we'll still be putting, and my successors will still be putting, ink on paper well past my working life. I, I think that's right. But more and more of the journalistic attention or the attention of, of people in journalism will shift to other formats, and that in itself will change the way we work. It's interesting to me when you say that because there are elements of journalism that are supposed to show promise, whether it's a long-form narrative story, uh, all of these multimedia possibilities, video, uh, audio. Does that get in the way or does that help? Well, I think the more options we have for compelling storytelling, the better. And you see some of the uh, great work that is being done now in new formats by call them established, mature media, all that's great. 
and there will be more opportunity for that. But there will also be more and more competition for the time of the audience. And so it will have to be really good and compelling. There's no room for the mediocre feature anymore. Here's one thing that's changed in my time as uh, in journalism. I think there may never have been, but we could used to, we would be able to tolerate the mediocre feature story. No more. It must be excellent to be able to compete for the time and attention of the consumer, of the reader, of the viewer. You know, the, the, the story about, in the sports section, about some kid whose grandmother died last week and he's facing the game uh, coming up this weekend, bearing the sadness on his heart. I sound callous when I say I have no time for that story because I've seen it a thousand times. It must be brilliant. News, tell me something I don't know. There's a, there's a musical uh, called uh, In the Heights, uh, and there's a great number, one of Tony uh, a couple years back, uh, and there's a great number from the beauty shop where uh, the customers and the beauticians are all talking to each other. And the refrain on the song is, tell me something I don't know. And I love that song as a motto for our business. So because news is distinctive, if you tell me something I don't already know or help me understand something in another way, news is distinctive. Features must be either really illuminating, really engaging on a human basis, or they have to tell me, help me understand something in a way I hadn't before, or preferably both. But for the mediocre future, feature, the, the competition on that is way too stiff these days. It's a wonderful segue into talking about um, your final, I think it's your final year on the Pulitzer Prize Board. Um, how did you get there at first? Well, the call comes out of the blue. The Pulitzer Board is a self-sustaining board. We have uh, on the board what is charmingly known as the Vacancies Committee. (laughs) And the Vacancies Committee uh, works uh, under the radar and uh, makes consideration, does some checking on people, makes uh, a recommendation to the board as a whole, and then the board elects uh, someone uh, really offers an invitation to join. Just about everybody says yes. But I was home one Sunday uh, afternoon uh, in the fall, and uh, my uh, wife and daughters were out, and I sort of had, I was on the couch. I had one eye shut and the other eye on, on a Bucks uh, football game. And the phone rang, and I stirred myself to go get it because it might be one of the girls uh, calling and, and needed something. Uh, otherwise, if, if they'd been home, I never would have answered because the phone never rings for me. <laughs> but I got up and answered, and, uh, and uh, the person on the other line said, is this Paul Tash? Now, on a Sunday in your own circulation uh, area, the question, are you, name, the editor of the paper from uh, someone uh, you don't know on the phone is is sort of a mixed uh, question fraught with uh, lots of possibility. But I said, yes, this is Paul. He said, well, Paul, this is Skip Gates, the professor at Harvard and who I knew to be the chairman of the Pulitzer Prize Board at the time. He said, and uh, we've taken a vote and we would like you uh, to uh, join the Pulitzer Prize Board. Well, terrific. You know, it was great. But, you know, so so the uh, my wife and daughters were out. There were only the two dogs at the, around the house. I could tell that, you know, they looked very expectant and seemed seemed optimistic about that. This looked like good news to them. But uh, so my original uh, audience of congratulations and uh, were a couple of very small uh, and uh, uh, furry uh, friends. Uh, but so that's how you get picked. You get you get picked it and the call comes out of the blue and it's it's. You can serve three terms each of three years as a maximum, and I'm coming to the end. And because I'm in my last year, uh, the most senior member of the board is the chair, and and I'm the chair. I will miss it. Uh, Two months from now, uh, we will gather at Columbia University once again uh, in the world room there, and we will, all of us, will have spent 
uh, most of the time since thanks much of the time since Thanksgiving, reading both in in literature in five categories of books, in drama, the plays, uh, and in journalism, where we give fourteen prizes, and that will be uh, a terrifically rich and stimulating couple of days. When I after that call from Skip Gates, I had shortly after that an email from Tom Friedman, who'd gone on the board uh, just a year or two before I had. And he sent me a note that said, welcome to the world's best book club. And and it is that. Uh, But it's also, I think, uh, the world's best and most genial debating society. Uh, Because there is huge respect and affection for each other, but there are also some pretty clear differences. And so we've all read the same work. We all come uh, to the table prepared to discuss uh, what we've seen. And uh, uh, it's like a cocktail party that goes on for two days except without the cocktails, you know. It's, It's just terrific. What's your role as chair? Uh, the role as chair uh, has uh, a couple of um, particular responsibilities. One is to keep the meetings moving. You know, looking ahead to uh, April, our April meeting, which is the most important meeting, we'll have some we'll have some interesting questions to sort out. Now, remember, it's a two-step process. The we will get from juries in each of those 21 categories a set of three finalists. But, you know, you can look back over the year in journalism, and there are some very interesting issues that are going to come up. There's been an interesting year in publishing, in books. So uh, you want to have a – I think your your primary role as the chair is to make sure that – the board is able to effectively come to a good set of prizes and to try to help the board do that during the course of the meeting. Now, there's a bunch of other things that have to be done, too, to get to that point. And so we have committee, other committees on the board, the vacancies, effectively the nominations committee. We have a, a committee that looks at the future of the prize. We've started this year looking ahead to the 100th anniversary of the Pulitzer Prizes, which come up in about three years, and making our plans for how to observe that milestone, that terrific anniversary. So there's some other work. You want to make sure that those com- that committee work gets done well during the court. But right now, we're all very much in the midst of our reading. Things like books and plays, those categories have remained fixed, but um, the journalism categories have changed over time. How is the Pulitzer Prize dealing with um, online journalism, uh, digital information, multimedia? Well, we have more and more elements uh, of electronic publishing uh, submitted as part of the entries. The entries in journalism themselves now are all submitted electronically, usually as PDFs of work that appeared often originally in print, but there are some multimedia elements as well. We're seeing entries from organizations that are brand relatively new, ProPublica, the investigative reporting website, uh, has won a couple of Pulitzers. Last year, the National Reporting Prize went to an outfit called Inside Climate News uh, that didn't exist when I first joined the Pulitzer Prize Board. In national reporting, in the category with heavyweights, you mentioned earlier, like the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, it went to an outfit with fewer than 10 staffers and a history that didn't doesn't reach back as as far as a decade ago for some brilliant work covering uh, the biggest oil pipeline spill you've never heard of in Michigan. So I think the Pulitzer Board is recognizing all these changes. Now, 
personally, and I speak only for myself and not for the board, I think the board and the pollsters work best if we try to recognize what's going on and respond to the best work wherever it's occurring and whoever's doing it, rather than try to direct, send signals. I think it's very hard to know. And I think the board, particularly since we don't pronounce ourselves about our rationale, I think we should just try to find the best work and and look both with our juries and with ourselves uh, about about what is interesting, what is compelling, what is important. How does the board handle prizes that, how should we put this, go wrong? Janet Cook, um, having been chosen in 1981, uh, and I think the prize was taken away, and there are still two cases, Walter Durante, uh, for foreign affairs reporting in 1932, William L. Lawrence in 1946. Do you think boards should go back and look at those again? I'm unfamiliar with the second of the of the two historic cases you made. I know a little bit about the Walter uh, Durante case, and the, though the board sorted that out before I came to it. On Janet Cook, uh, she uh, made up the story that won the Pulitzer Prize, and unfortunately the Washington Post didn't know it until the prize was announced and just in the routine background uh, work done by, I think, by one of the other reporters covering the Pulitzer Prize announcements, her story started to unravel. And the Post, on its own, very quickly relinquished uh, the Pulitzer Prize. There was no other option, but the Post quickly came to the right decision. On the Walter Durante case, Walter Durante was a reporter for the New York Times who covered uh, the Soviet Union in, in uh, during Stalinism. And the complaint about in and at one, the board gave uh, Durante uh, the Pulitzer Prize for foreign coverage, and the suggestion later arose that he was uh, way too adoring uh, of uh, uh, Stalin's regime and overlooked the huge. Uh, uh, famine, uh, I think, particularly in the Ukraine, and was uh, that the prize for his coverage of the Soviet Union sh- during that era should be revoked as inadequate, as uh, inappropriate, because the coverage was so flawed. I, I think the board, and I'm just going off what I know from what the board has said. Uh, made uh, the decision then not to go back and try to impose today's judgment on a previous era. And I think that's the right, personally, I think that's the right decision. I think it's very difficult to go back uh, with the benefit of hindsight. This is this is also a reflection of what the board did at the time. And I know now in my mind, and I believe in the mind of other board members, we look at prizes we're going to give us. How will this hold up over time? It's a little hard to know. But one of the one of the things you want to do is make a set of prizes that look pretty good in uh, with the benefit of uh, some years of perspective. We're about to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Pulitzer Prizes two or three years from now. There's a there's a whole record of our prizes during that time. Some of those will look really, really smart. Others, maybe maybe not so, not as smart. But overall, I think, I think the Pulitzer Prizes have done a remarkable job of recognizing some of the best work in both the literary and the journalistic arts over this last century. What does it mean to win a Pulitzer Prize now? It's it's a great day. <laughs> it is a great day. We had a seminar at uh, the Pointer Institute for uh, f- about the Pulitzer Prizes. It was jointly sponsored by the Prizes and the Pointer Institute. And we had winners in four of the categories from last year. And I think all of those people would say it was a remarkable affirmation of their own work, uh, and the, the kind of journalism that really did make a difference in each of those cases. I think it is, uh, it's a great day. 
And I think the 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 benefit of that great day continues uh, to uh, uh, play out over quite some time. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Paul Tash, chairman and CEO of the Tampa Bay Times Publishing Company and chair of the Pulitzer Board. Paul, thanks for being here. It's been my pleasure, Owen. To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us. We close with more music by one of Nelson Pointer's fellow students from Indiana in the 1920s, Stardust by Hoagie Carmichael. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. And now the purple dusk of twilight time Steals across the meadows of my heart High up in the sky The little stars climb Always reminding me That we're apart You wander down the lane and far away Leaving me a song that will not die Love is now the stardust of yesterday The program you just heard was recorded in February of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.